If everyone uh, open their Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 4. After these things I looked, and behold a door, standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne of a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven, on earth, in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power. Be, be to him who sits on the throne 
and the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Thank you. It is a treat to be here with you today. And uh, I just want to say thank you, Frank, for all your arrangements and to the Millicans for their very gracious hospitality. We've thoroughly enjoyed being here. And um, I want to mention, too, we have a small display out there. Feel free to stop by to get one of our prayer cards. We really need a lot of prayer in our ministry, so we hope that you'll get one and put it wherever is the best place in your house to see it, on the refrigerator door or in your Bible or on the mirror in the bathroom, wherever that, that good place, that hot spot is. And if you'd like to sign up for our email updates that Janet sends about every three weeks, there's also a sign-up sheet on the table there in the, in the uh, entryway. The title of today's message is Missions, Why Bother? And I, I put it up that way because one of the things that strikes me is that sometimes, and having worked in, in local churches a good amount, you, you realize there are some people have just a, their hearts beat for missions, and with others it's kind of like, ah, we got to do missions again. How come? I mean, like, what's the big deal? We've got to pray for it. We've got to give for it. And we even got to send somebody occasionally. It's like, why bother? So I want to talk about that today. I want, to, want us to look at this passage that we've just read. Thank you, Frank, for reading that. This is probably the most formative passage in my personal theology. I think everybody, most Christians at least, will be able to point to their favorite passages and, and say this one has really been helpful to me. And for me, Revelations 4, Revelation 4 and 5 is, is just uh, critically important in how I um, relate to, to God and, and understand him. And so if you have your Bibles open there, I hope you'll just pray a quick prayer and say, Holy Spirit, sanctify my imagination, unleash it to just kind of run rampant here and, and let's think about this a little bit and see what it has to say and how it speaks to this question. It's a phenomenal um, uh, image that, that, that John presents as he um, paints the picture for us in these two chapters because obviously when he steps into heaven to see this vision and you know maybe they've just done a remodeling job in heaven I don't know and maybe there's this old pulpit sitting over to the side and he kind of just figures he can kind of crouch down behind that pulpit and see what's going on get kind of a not exactly a bird's eye view but a prophet's eye view at least of heaven and see what what has what happens there and so he begins to describe for us what he sees, and it's, it's quite the picture. And so as we've just read, and as you can read as you look back through Revelation 4 again, uh, obviously the one on the throne, and he describes him in the colors of these precious stones to, to just begin to give us kind of a banquet for the senses, because there are colors to be seen, and there are the... the um, the four living creatures that are going to be a sight to behold when we get there and we get to see what they look like. I, I mean, he can just really hardly begin to describe them as he describes them as full of eyes and with the different features that he presents them. So there are the four um, living beings stationed, I suppose, maybe kind of around the throne. Like There are a lot of uh, similarities between what's described here and what would be described in uh, the throne room of a Roman emperor. And one of those is just the honor guard that would be there. Not that God needs anybody to protect him, but the honor guard is just there uh, as part of the scene, scenery in the, in the throne room. And there are the 24 elders around them. And you can just imagine yourself, in, in your mind, those, those um, 
thrones, those 24 elders in their white garments, their gold, their uh, throne, their crowns. Sorry, I think of some of this in Spanish. They're crowns of gold, and they're sitting there, and then there are the seven torches. There's the rainbow, I suppose, concentric circles of green. Green, uh, for me, is the color of life, and I assume that that's just, life just oozes out of God from all of his pores, and I suppose those concentric circles may be different textures and, and tones of green, and they, they are there to just add to the beauty. The, mar, the, the, marsh, the um, crystal sea that's there in front of the throne, I suppose it's like a reflecting pond for God's glory. Perhaps it's there kind of as a moat to say, you know, God is unapproachable to a certain degree. I don't know. But I wonder, you know, what is that, that there for? But then you, you look at this, and, and Janet found this picture, and I don't know if you can, it doesn't really quite come through on the, on the video the way it does on my laptop screen, but it is just such an indescribable uh, presentation of God's beauty and majesty and his holiness and his sovereignty in every Jewish writer, for instance, of the first century. There were a lot of writers writing Jewish apocalyptic literature in the first century, and they would give these detailed descriptions of what it was like in heaven. And John gives us just enough that we can get a, a sort of a picture of it. He talks about the, the lightning that's coming from the throne, and you can, you're obviously, you see the lightning, the rumbles of the thunder that you hear, and then the claps of thunder that you feel the pressure of the airwave, airwaves from that clap of thunder against your body. It talks about the incense of the prayers of the saints. The um, elders uh, have um, harps. I don't know if those are electric harps or acoustic harps. But I don't know if they're Epiphones or Rickenbackers, but you, know, you can just kind of let your imagination go, and depending on your taste in music for that. But it's really a banquet for the senses. I mean, all of your senses are engaged as you're there in heaven. And every Jewish apocalyptic writer who describes the scene of heaven would say, Yes, it's, it's like that, and it's a whole lot more. But John doesn't really give that much time to all, describing all of those glorious aspects of heaven that the other Jewish writers did, because I don't think that's really his, his focus. And as John continues to describe here what he sees, it seems to me he gives a different focus to what he wants us to be impressed with about heaven. He goes on and he describes the Lamb, in chapter 5, and the, um, the surprise there that comes forth, every Jewish writer of the first, first century would say, yes, what you're seeing here on this screen and in all its glory and its beauty, that is exactly God as we understand him. God in his sovereignty and his holiness and his beauty and his majesty, God in his unapproachability, and, and so you get that on, cha- on page four in your, uh, chapter 4 in your Bible, and then on, chap- in, on the next page, chapter 5, it's like something else happens that would catch every Jew off guard. Because there we get a picture of the down and dirty God. The God who comes down into the world in the dirt of this fallen world to redeem it and to transform it. And that would be a real mind boggler for a Jew of the first century. Because they would never have expected to see that side of God. They would have all had been in agreement with the fact that God is holy, exalted, 
unapproachable in His holiness and everything else? Absolutely. But to think of this as being God, as God, God, obviously they believed God loved them. There was no question about that. But God, to not just humble Himself, but to be humiliated? God who makes Himself vulnerable to this degree that Jesus did when He goes to the cross? And all of the things that go with that in terms of of what we see in the person of Jesus in his ministry and his kindness and his compassion and his tremendous faithfulness and willingness to go to the cross and to be treated as an outright criminal and literally a reject by God because as the Old Testament law says, whoever dies on the stake or on a tree is condemned to hell, rejected by God. And so a Jew looking at this would be struggling with it, figuring, yes, God in in Revelation 4, exalted in his holiness and unapproachability? Absolutely. But God paying the, the ultimate price, willing to go to the cross to show the depth of his love and the determination, his determination to fulfill his promises for such as us? Whoa, that's a different picture of God. And yet when you look at the picture that John presents of God in Revelation 4 and 5, and the impact that it has on those who live in his presence, it's powerful. Because what he shows us is, well, obviously God's there in the middle, and you get the four living creatures around him, and you have the 24 elders around them in another concentric circle. You have the billions of angels, the uncountable multitudes, as it's described in in Revelation 5, around the 24 elders. And then you have the circle of the rest of creation around them. And so you've got these concentric circles, and it's like every time that God says or does something, what response does it get? Well, the four living creatures cry out all over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They just can't quit. It's like every time God says or does something else, that they see it, they just respond, yes. And, it's con- and, and what else happens? Well, it's contagious because then the 24 elders get down on their knees just as the, the kings of, a, of the Roman Empire, when they gathered before Caesar, they came before him, they bowed down, probably their face to the floor, they put their crown on the floor in front of him, and what were they doing? They were saying, we are here to honor you. Everything we have belongs to you. We are your servants. And that's what the 24 elders are saying. But it doesn't stop there. Because as we read all in uh, Revelation 5, the angels join in. And, you know, you go to a Rays game, and they've got a big public speaker system, the huge sound system there in the stadium. They don't need any sound system in heaven, not with five billion angels or however many there are, singing out full volume as it describes it there. And then beyond that, then the rest of creation joins in. And it's like worship is contagious. These are the ones who are 24-7 living in God's presence. And they are so continually amazed by what they see of God and what they hear of God and the conversations probably that they catch between the members of the Trinity and the things that God is saying and doing and the the things that he gives the angels to do tasks 
to go do that we read about in Scripture. And, and those who live in his presence 24-7 are so impressed with who he is that they don't have to schedule worship services. Worship just flows from who they are. Worship is their just almost uncontrollable response to who God is. They are just so amazed continually with who God is that they just delight to worship him because they so rejoice in who he is, what he's like, and what he does. And so worship is just natural for them. Well, as you look at this diagram, um, we realize there are, these are, this is a solid circle here where the four living beings are around God because that's a complete circle. It's a full, oh, all four of them are there. Apparently that's all there are going to be. The circle of the 24 elders is the same way. It's a closed circle because that's a, the, the number of them is full, apparently. The billions of angels, that's a closed circle as well because we don't see any evidence in Scripture that the demons are going to repent and come back and join the crowd in heaven. But the circle that's, that's the creation circle where we live, that's an open circle. And the, um, there's, some, there's some real important implications to that. Because what we're seeing here is worship just spreading out through heaven, incorporating everybody into it. But what we realize as we look at the creation circle where we live here and now, that's an open circle because it's not yet complete. God's still at work there to bring people into that circle. Until, and when it's full, Jesus will come back. But until he does, um, the, uh, but, but this open circle of creation, the circle that you and I live in, is the circle where, where missions is happening because worship has not yet been completed in that circle. Not all of us are there, and we're not all in the shape we're going to be in order to worship God as he deserves to be worshipped. So Revelation 4 and 5, for me, show us that for those who, for those who live in God's presence 24-7, God is unconditionally worthy to be worshipped for all he's worth all the time by all that exists. But it's also that Revelation 5.13 points to the fact that all of creation, even us, we, we too are designed to rejoice in God, to delight in who he is, but not just for a few minutes on Sunday morning here, but all the time so that worship will flow from us too. And the reality is that just as those four living creatures, those 24 elders, and all those billions of angels, they're, they're being themselves as completely as they possibly can be when? When they're worshiping God for all he's worth, with all they're worth, that's what we're made for too. It's only when we, res when we respond to God with that kind of worship. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship 24-7. It's only then that we respond to him adequately. It's only then that we become fully the human beings we're designed to be. When we see God to such a degree that we say, God, I want to live my life to worship you because that's what you deserve from me. I think I better, for time's sake, I better move quickly beyond this. But this is, the, this is an evangelism explosion 30th anniversary photo. Some of you are probably familiar with that from James Kennedy in um, Coral 
Ridge, and uh, I had the privilege of going to that in 1996. It was a phenomenal thing. People from literally every country of the world were present at this uh, event. And it was, it was an amazing thing to see the, the Jewish pastor of First Baptist of Bethlehem standing next to the, to the Arab believer, and the North Korean believer standing next to the South, South Korean believer, people reconciled in Christ that you knew there had just been centuries, if not more, of, of hatred among them. And it struck me as I thought about that, you know, that when 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we all with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory, there are some translations that say reflect as in a mirror, because that's the idea. Reflecting as in a mirror God's glory. We are being transformed into his likeness. That, that message, or that uh, verse just and that photo just brought me back to the fact that we are made in God's image to reflect his glory like mirrors. But what does sin do? Sin shatters the mirror of my life and covers it with grunge and muck and all kinds of junk. And yet what is God doing in Christ? He's building a new humanity that's going to recover that ability to reflect his glory in all its beauty and its, its majesty. That's what God's doing in Christ, not just forgiving us so we can live a Christian life, Lone Ranger style, just for me. But he's building a new humanity that's going to be able, just like this, this, in this excuse me, in this picture, just as this, new, this humanity of reconciled people, redeemed people, was gathered around the cross to praise God. And so I look at that and I think, you know, that's why John Piper says in his book, Worship exists, have you heard this? Because mission doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. And I think that is so right on, so hits the nail on the head. Thank you very much. Missions exist because worship doesn't. That fourth circle of creation around the throne, it's not full yet. And that's why we send missionaries. That's why we pray for missionaries. That's why some go as missionaries. And that's why we give to support missions. As John Piper says, worship is the fuel and the goal of missions. Worship is the fuel and the goal of missions. And it's just so right on. And he puts different verses in from the Psalms, for instance, that talk about that. Same as we'd see in Revelation 2. Revelation also. So why bother with missions? Partly so the lost of every race and people group can be forgiven, reconciled to God, and born again, obviously. Human need is tremendous, and that's why missions. But it's also so that this new humanity of redeemed, reconciled, regenerated people can begin to be transformed to become like Christ, so that we begin to reflect his glory to those around us. And beyond that, it seems to me there's just this kind of this moral imperative which drives eternity, and it's only going to be fully satisfied when God receives all the glory that he is worthy to receive. Five times in these two chapters, the word or the issue of worthiness is brought up. It's like when we begin to see God as he is and to realize what he is worthy of, it's like missions is, no, is not too big a price to pay in order to see this humanity, that new humanity in Christ brought to maturity for his glory. So if missions exist because worship doesn't, I need to begin with me. Does how I think about God, does how I feel about God, does that move me to live to worship Him? 
And as we saw in those concentric circles, how worship is just contagious. It starts in the middle, and it just spreads out. And I begin to realize, hopefully, that if this God is really who the Bible tells me that he is, it's too good to keep to myself. I have to share it. I want to share it. It moves me to live to see others come to worship him as well. But we also want to think about, our, about ourselves as a church. How is God calling us as a church to help this new humanity that he is building in Christ? How is God calling us to help this humanity grow in quality and quantity and maturity? Starting here in our Jerusalem, continuing through our Judea, our Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And how can we do that so that God best receives the worship that he's due? Those are critical questions as far as I'm concerned as a missionary. And honestly, I don't see us necessarily asking those questions. And I think we need to. I think I hope that we spend time together in small groups and in sermons and in Sunday school classes and in private conversations talking about these, praying about these, answering these, because they are so critically important. Lord, your word shows us something of who you are. The cross shows us so much more and the resurrection. We are amazed at who you are. And if you are really who the Bible tells us you are, then yes, God, we want to respond and say, use us to help this new humanity you're building in Christ to become all you've created it to be. We want to be your instruments, Lord, to worship you and to help others live to worship you as well so that you receive the glory you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Eric. I'm sure you have a new vision of, God, of the glory of God as a result of what Eric has said. And how does that apply to you? We need to be fervent in our prayer for missions and thank God for young people like these two couples who have given themselves for the proclamation of the gospel.